Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Lots going on in the national security and intelligence world, as usual this week. One of the big stories was the report that Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley was so alarmed about President Trump's mental state that he reached out to his Chinese counterpart to assure him that everything was under control in Washington. There's been wide ranging opinion on Milley's action. I call up Spy Talk's resident expert on Chinese intelligence, Matthew Brazil, to ask him about it. Both sides of any potential nuclear exchange fear a number of things. They fear a surprise attack. They fear that the leader of the other side may have lost their minds and will do something suicidal or crazy with nuclear weapons. They fear misunderstandings and miscommunications that could lead to bad decision making on one side or the other. And so I think that General Milley was not being a hawk or a dove. He was being an owl. That was Matthew Brazil, author of Chinese Communist Espionage. That interview is coming up. But first, with the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, there's been a lot of talk and attention on the Taliban, and rightly so. Often mentioned in the same breath, the Haqqani Network. I decided I didn't know enough about them, so I called on Tom Sanderson. Tom is a principal at Tom Sanderson Consulting and was founder of the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's done fieldwork in 75 countries evaluating risks and opportunities and has made four visits to Afghanistan. I started with the basics. What is the Haqqani Network? The Haqqani Network is a terror criminal syndicate in South Asia, one of the most talented, deadly, cunning, groups that we have ever had to deal with anywhere in the world. They got their start in the 1970s in Afghanistan. They were part of the civil wars and all of the incredible violence that took place prior to the Soviet invasion in 1979. And then for every year after that, they have been a key player. Uh, They were a very early supporter of the Taliban. They pledged allegiance to it very early on in the 1990s. Jalaluddin Haqqani, the patriarch of the family, was made the military commander of the Taliban since uh, deceased. And uh, now Sirajuddin Haqqani is the leader of the group. But this group received funding during the anti-Soviet jihad, as many refer to it, from the United States and Saudi Arabia in an effort to eject the Soviets from Afghanistan. Um, That money, though, we did not hand over to the Haqqani Network. This is the money, as you know, we provided for the Pakistanis, and the Pakistanis always determined where that money would go. Uh, We just had a one-for-one match from the Saudis in this effort to defeat the Soviets. What's their relationship with the Taliban now? The relationship is symbiotic. They are a semi-autonomous part of the Taliban. They were very much the above-ground operational arm of the Taliban uh, during the last 20 years when the Taliban was 
politically underground, but also militarily in, in insurgency. The Haqqani Network carried out a lot of the dirtiest deeds for the Taliban, bombing the Indian interests, American interests, civilians, a CIA base, U.S. Embassy, NATO headquarters, kidnapping individuals. In fact, the, the last remaining American kidnap victim, Mark Frerichs, is still believed to be in Haqqani hands today. One of the things they did to make themselves so effective was that they were able to get their hands on the vast amounts of money that were circulating through Afghanistan during the last 20 years. So when the Europeans or the Americans would provide support for a project somewhere in Afghanistan, the Haqqanis were very good at extorting through the threat of violence a lot of the money that was um, meant for a civic project. Human trafficking, narcotics trafficking, gun trafficking, all things that the Haqqani Network does. But it is critical to note that the Haqqanis would not be where they are today without the support in sanctuary provided by Pakistan and the Pakistani ISI, the Inner Services Intelligence Directorate. Is there any chance, do you think, that with the U.S. out of the picture now in Afghanistan, they will splinter with the Taliban? There is. There's a lot of ferment right now in Afghanistan. The leadership and control of the country is not yet consolidated. There is not a monopoly on violence uh, and on the, the use of force by the Taliban. There are differences. We know that the Haqqani network, again, under the leadership of Sirajuddin Haqqani, using his two personal armies or militias, Badri 313 and Fateh, took Wardak in Logar province in order to block the Kandahari Taliban from reaching Kabul. So they very early on uh, made sure that they were in control of the seat of power, that they made the major decisions, that they were the main interlocutor with the United States military on the ground at the airport. Also importantly, they control the areas east of Kabul, the forested areas that abut Pakistan, which of course gives them unrestrained, unblocked access to their primary patron. So the new interior minister is the head of the Haqqani network. Um, He's on the FBI most wanted list, has a $10 million bounty on his head. For what? For his actions and attacks over the past several years, for very specific actions, bombings, uh, assassinations. But his rap sheet is so long, we would spend hours just detailing the attacks that he's pulled off, very high profile attacks. But that bounty is out there, and he is the primary person that we deal with and have dealt with uh, on a military level. And here we are dealing with him now as interior minister. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And he's, the, so. he's the guy in charge of security for the country. So this is not bode well for yeah. inclusiveness, does it? No, not at all. And we know they are not being inclusive. We have, of course, promoted the notion of inclusivity and in governance that they bring in the Shiite Hazaras, that they bring in ethnic Uzbeks and Tajiks and others. And all of the, the key positions are held by Pashtuns. This will not be an inclusive government, but there will there will certainly be differences between the government now and the Taliban government of 1996 through 2001, when we were able to uh, eject them essentially into uh, Pakistan. 
they do need to put a better face on their program. There are $7 billion sitting in the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and there are other money controlled by the World Bank. The new leadership needs to get their hands on this. Uh, so the Haqqani Network, the Taliban leadership, the Kandahari elements are not about to go around and act like the Taliban of 1996, but we should not be misled into believing that this is a soft and cuddly 2.0 Taliban. President Biden said our one remaining interest in Afghanistan after the American citizens are released, not released, but leave the country if it is leaving that they seek to do, is to prevent an attack, a terror attack from Afghanistan, hearkening back to the 9-11 attack by al-Qaeda. So the concern is that the Taliban and Haqqani Network will allow al-Qaeda to flourish in Afghanistan uh, and attack U.S. interests regionally and then potentially attack on American soil. That, the president says, is our one remaining national interest uh, going forward. But because of that money in the bank, we have some leverage. Indeed. Are we going to be able to keep them in line? What are the prospects? Well, uh, we we don't have a lot of leverage. Uh, Certainly, the money is leveraged. The potential for recognition down the road is also leverage. There's no doubt that the Taliban would like to be um, seen as a member of the family of nations, however intolerant or extreme their government intends to be and is right now. And, And being able to gather more than three nations to recognize them as they had in the 1990s with only Pakistan, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia recognizing them uh, would be a boon to them in many, many ways. So there are things that the U.S. can do now. And of course, if the relationship goes very sour between the U.S. and the Taliban and the Khanis, we do retain our ability to strike from a distance. The most recent attack on the U.S. came from ISIS-K. And what is the Haqqani Network's relationship with that group? I can't say for certain what the relationship is between the Haqqani Network and ISIS-K, but in the research I conducted over the last couple of weeks on the violence in Afghanistan surrounding the departure of Americans and, and Afghans and, and others, is that the Badri 313, the Haqqani Attack Network in Kabul, consists of ISIS-K members who are from the Kabul area. Now, this will seem strange to those who have been paying attention to the relationship between the Taliban, ISIS-K, and al-Qaeda, and the Haqqanis. The Haqqanis, of course, are aligned with and part of the broader Taliban family, which means they are at odds, to say the least, with ISIS-K. Al-Qaeda is at odds with ISIS-K. They are adversaries of ISIS-K, and al-Qaeda is part of the Taliban-Haqqani universe. They cooperate in enable operations. So we have ISIS-K members that are part of this Kabul attack network that we believe is responsible for the attack that resulted in the deaths of 170 Afghans and 13 American servicemen and women. That is uh, an odd thing. It's a good example of uh, strange bedfellows, but these things happen on the battlefield where alliances are struck for specific needs. Speaking of leverage, does Pakistan have any? They've had a long time close relationship with the Haqqanis. They have an incredible amount of leverage. A lot of the Haqqani network leaders over the years and foot soldiers came out of madrasas, uh, the Quranic schools in Pakistan. They came out of some of the more extreme mosques you find in Western Pakistan. 
the Haqqani network, along with the Taliban, have been the center of gravity for Pakistan's military, economic, diplomatic enterprise inside of Afghanistan. That relationship has been solid and unbroken for many decades now. So Pakistan at this point isn't going to do anything to lessen the risk for the U.S., is it? Well, Pakistan is very good at playing both sides. As Christine Fair, a professor at Georgetown University, has said, they're very good at being the arsonist and the firefighter at the same time. They recognize they have leverage. They will use it at times to help us and at times to enable their partners, which could end up hurting us. So this is something we have dealt with for many decades with the Pakistanis themselves. How would you judge the level of risk and the level of opportunity right now when it comes to the Haqqanis? There is certainly some opportunity here to engage them from a distance and to engage them very carefully because they are essentially the center of gravity in this new government based in Kabul. They are not the only player, but they are the deadliest player. They are very well supported by the Pakistanis. And so we need to deal with them. But there's only so many things that they can do that we can um, handle in order to maintain the relationship. There is great risk. There is certainly an immense amount of risk here. They hold an American hostage, we believe. They carry out violent acts right now against adversaries, including vulnerable Afghans in the country. Um, but they do control the country and it's a country that hosts al-Qaeda. And we need them to make sure that al-Qaeda is on a very short leash in the country. Any forecasts for you on how this will evolve? That is the million-dollar question, of course. I do think that for a while, the Taliban Haqqani leadership want to put on this face of we are marginally inclusive, to be honest, maybe only slightly inclusive, that they are intend to govern well. Of course, they, corruption is less of a factor with them than it was with the Afghan government under every leader that we've supported um, since the October 2001 invasion. So they certainly want to enable the flow of support, of recognition, and will continue to do that. But there will be red lines. It's hard for me to say exactly what all of those red lines are, but Taking any hostages, of course, would be a strong indicator that the relationship has greatly soured. Any strikes that we conduct on al-Qaeda will be an indicator that we think an attack was being planned by al-Qaeda, which would suggest that the Haqqanis and the rest of the Taliban leadership did not read the riot act to the al-Qaeda leadership to tell them not to conduct any strikes. So we, we have a lot of foggy terrain ahead of us where it is difficult to make out the features and the future of the relationship. But we need to engage, but to do so very carefully, always with the ability to threaten with violence, uh, but to also use other means of coercion and inducements. So talk to me about some of the other nations in the neighborhood who, who have an interest here, the Chinese, the Russians, for yeah. example. Well, let's talk about China first. China has a 55-mile border with Afghanistan, that very small panhandle on the northeast corner of Afghanistan, the Wakhan Corridor, is China's border, one of many, many borders that the Chinese have that is unstable. Um, the Chinese would like the Taliban and the Haqqanis to ensure that there is no support going to Uyghur separatists 
and militants. I would note importantly that those are militants and separatists that have been simulated by China's exceptional repression of uh, Uyghur culture. This is a Muslim minority in uh, Western China, in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, as the Uyghurs call it. So China is keen on ensuring that, on the one hand, militancy, support for it, fighters don't cross the border. On the other hand, the Chinese would very much like to get to some of the rare earth elements and a lot of the gems that are in Afghanistan. Afghanistan has an exceptional bounty of precious, semi-precious gems and rare earth elements uh, in the country. And next door is is China. And China has the ability to extract that. That is a, a great piece of leverage that the Chinese have, which represents a potential and likely source of revenue for the Taliban government and to the Russians. The Russians no longer have a border with Afghanistan. We know that in February of 1989, the last Soviet Red Army forces retreated from Afghanistan after sustaining, I believe, around 15,000 dead in in their war uh, over 10 years. But they retain a lot of influence in the Central Asian states that remain on Afghanistan's border, among those Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. And the Russians have varying degrees of influence in these countries. They have a drone base in Tajikistan, and they have the 201st Motorized Rifle Division still in Tajikistan. They have a lot of influence there. And the Russians clearly would like to make sure that um, there's a a cessation or a reduction in narcotics trafficking from uh, Afghanistan up through Central Asia into Russia, where there's a significant addiction rate. They would also like to make sure that Al-Qaeda and other elements do not cross that border and move up into Central Asia. This is an area that the Russians call their near abroad. They believe that they have uh, essentially an exclusive economic and strategic relationship with Central Asia, which they do not. The Chinese have a very important relationship there. So the Russians do have interest there, and they aren't going to make a massive investment in Afghanistan, but they're delighted to see that now the image of the most recent defeat in Afghanistan is one of the United States and no longer the Soviet Red Army. That was Tom Sanderson, principal at Tom Sanderson Consulting. That was terrific, Gene. Uh, Tom Sanderson is a highly recognized expert on transnational terrorism and narco-terrorism. And of course, there's a lot of justified fear that Afghanistan is going to quickly turn into a narco-terrorist state. The opium crop is big, brings in a lot of money for the Taliban, has for a long time. And now that they've, of course, captured Kabul, they can really uh, sort of militarize the production of opium and smuggling and terrorism. So that's something we're going to keep our eyes on for a long time. Meanwhile, like many others, I was fascinated last week by an excerpt in Peril, the new book by the Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, that pertained to an alleged incident in which Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley was so alarmed about Trump's mental state that he reached out to his Chinese counterpart to assure him that everything was under control in Washington. That prompted me to wonder how good Chinese intelligence is at sussing out what's going on in Washington. Do his spies and analysts give China's military leaders, especially, a clear enough view of what our leaders are thinking and doing 
so that we can all lessen the chances of a misunderstanding that could lead to war. As it happens, one of Spy Talk's contributing editors, Matthew Brazil, is an expert on Chinese intelligence. Matthew Brazil, welcome to Spy Talk. The first reporting on the Woodward Costas book, Peril, left an impression with me that General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of course, needed to reassure his Chinese counterpart that no attack was in the offing because he felt maybe the Chinese intelligence was having a hard time figuring out what was going on in Washington. Now, you're an expert on Chinese communist espionage. You even co-authored a book by that name. So what do you think? Does Chinese intelligence, the Chinese leadership, have a good grasp of Washington decision-making in general? Or did just Trump's notorious impulsiveness make that difficult, as he made it difficult for everyone? What do you think? Certainly the latter is important, that Trump's impulsiveness and the uneven approach to foreign policy in that administration led to difficulty for foreign governments trying to understand actual American intentions. At the same time, the Chinese side has some problems. They, they do a lot of things pretty good. For example, they are probably number one in cyber operations worldwide, and they've managed to get a lot of information on American citizens tens of millions of American citizens, everything that one would know about them. Yeah. And let me stop you right there. So one of their penetrations was the Office of Personnel Management, which holds the personnel files of everyone in the federal government. So that gives them access to the backgrounds and history of millions of current and former federal employees. And they might be able to use that to uh, approach an American to spy for them, for starters. Including you and me. But a lot of people who are. Wait a minute. We are not you and me. I'm not a federal employee. Never have been since I was in the army. Ah, Well, I hadn't been one since 1995, but I got a notice from the OPM that my records had been compromised. So Hmm. it goes back. But one problem the Chinese have, that, that certainly is an advantage. They can get a lot of information. They have a lot of information available and they're probably spending a lot of time with their hundreds of thousands of professional officers who far outnumber ours going through all this information. But the problem they have stems from Marxism-Leninism, the necessity to hew to that dogma when reporting on places like the United States. For example, if one were to write something that was in contradiction to the um, inevitable decline of capitalism or the contradictions between labor and capital in a capitalist economy, then that would not make it very far and it could be a career limiting move. And so that's why the Chinese have occasionally approached foreigners without necessarily any intention of recruiting them, such as Nate Thayer, who's famous for reporting on the death of Pol Pot. He was approached by MSS agents from Shanghai to write reports about U.S.-China relations that they could take then and pass up to the leadership without fear of being tainted by an accusation of heresy. Hmm. And I suppose they're looking for a way to get hooks on an American journalist, which we have no evidence. We should quickly say that Nate there was ensnared by Chinese intelligence. Now he Um, told him to take a long walk off the short pier. Okay. 
And so they could just read uh, American newspapers or Western newspapers and magazines to uh, find out that. But they're looking to get their hooks into a target, just like uh, any Western intelligence service would do with the Chinese. Uh, Certainly. And that's the approach they used with Glenn Duffy Shriver, who was a student in Shanghai at the time. They offered him money to write essays about these subjects, but he was just a 23, 24-year-old kid. At the time, the real purpose they had was to give him more money and get him hooked and ask him to apply to State Department and CIA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they succeeded at that. Uh, He didn't uh, fulfill their goals, but they did recruit him, essentially, or coerce him into spying, and he was an asset. But going back to this idea that Marxism, Leninism, colors all their reporting, so how would that affect their view of what was going on in Washington with the Trump administration? Put yourself in the seat of the Chinese chief of station of Chinese intelligence in Washington. It might be that they would compare it to something that is within their understanding, uh, such as the Russian Revolution. When the Russian government in the late teens of uh, 100 years ago was gradually collapsing because of contradictions in society. And when they look at our society, they see plenty of contradictions between labor and capital, between uh, the big tech companies and ordinary people, for example, um, between Main Street and Wall Street. Well, they wouldn't be far off, would they? In this case, uh, it might be an, an assist. I don't want to endorse Karl Marx, but we have to keep these things in mind. Exactly. So let's talk about the big shot in Chinese intelligence, Chen Wenqing. You wrote about him for Spy Talk several months ago. It was a great piece. You, I remember you describing him as a tall and athletic looking with the typically dyed black hair of Chinese leadership who started out as a cop got into counterintelligence and became a prosecutor. And he's really flourished under Xi Jinping as a kind of an anti-corruption fighter and so on. But he's not a guy that we look at as sort of the suave, worldly head of British intelligence, let's say, who's served a lot of time abroad and knows uh, foreign leaders uh, pretty well. This guy is almost entirely domestically oriented, right? He is. He's probably traveled abroad a little bit. I know he's been to Japan, for example, but he's never actually operated as a case officer overseas handling foreigners. It may be that he has supervised handling foreigners in Chengdu, where he began his state security career. Mm -hmm. But at the time, he was focused on China's internal enemies, which is what the focus of the Ministry of State Security actually is. They do foreign intelligence, but their real mission that takes priority over everything else is finding enemies inside China and Chinese citizens who have become enemies who are outside of China. I've heard from others that, and you may have mentioned it to me as well, that Chinese tradecraft, in other words, how spies operate with secret meetings and and so on. Their tradecraft isn't very good. They're kind of sloppy. What do you say? It's uneven. And this is something that requires a lot more study. And there's a, it's also confusing because when the FBI says that they open a China-related case every 10 hours, which translates to a little bit over 800 a year, 
then they're lumping together all sorts of different things, including crazy people who try to bluff their way into Mar-a-Lago and are probably not connected with anybody but themselves. Uh And it includes uh, state-owned enterprises on their own, chasing after technology without necessarily any guidance from anyone in the Chinese uh, intelligence agencies. And they've targeted our aircraft industry. Uh, yes. you, you look at Chinese uh, war, uh, warfighters, aircraft, and they seem to be knockoffs of ours. Yes. And so the, the place where they've really made progress, and again, I mentioned that them as being number one, is cyber operations. And they combine human intelligence type work, that is uh, traditional spying, with cyber intelligence operations very successfully. But they've made some sort of strange errors. Uh, The case that's well known in the press from a few months ago of Christine Fang Fang, who was a Cal State East Bay student around here in the San Francisco area. Her mission was to get to know up and coming Democratic politicians. And she ended up sleeping with a couple of them who were never named. The ones who were named uh, were not compromised in that way, it would seem. But she met in the open with a state security officer who was known to the FBI and who should have been taking more careful counter surveillance Mm -hmm. steps. So that was an awful mistake. And it's the sort of thing that uh, I'm told happens more than occasionally. Yeah. Well, we know of a case many years ago uh, of a Chinese agent who seduced an FBI handler, became a double agent. I can't remember her name, but that was an outrageous case of an FBI guy just going gaga over this woman and being uh, totally manu- outmaneuvered by him. Now, there's another famous Chinese agent in Cold War history, and his name was Larry Wu Tai Chin. And he, infilt- he came up through the U.S. military, but he ended up in the CIA and he scored a big hit for Chinese intelligence. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, he was a student in Beijing when he was recruited by. Chinese intelligence, Chinese communist intelligence. This is before the actual establishment of the People's Republic. And uh, to make a long story short, he was hired by the American consulate in Shanghai in 1947. He worked for them for a couple of years. He was evacuated with all the other employees when the communist victory came uh, that year in 1949. And he ended up getting hired by the CIA. And he met a lot of people who were in the China program, that is officers. So anyone he met was instantly compromised. He most importantly was able to report to Beijing about the Nixon administration's plans to normalize relations or if not normalize them formally, then reestablish ties between Washington and Beijing. And so Mao and his uh, cohort had plenty of time to think about it and plan it and executed in a way that gave them an advantage. Yeah, that's, that's the biggest score in espionage, is you get someone who's familiar with the thinking of leaders at the very top, because that's something you can't necessarily rarely get through cyber operations. You can't get it through uh, overflights or satellites. You have to have an agent on the inside. Larry Wu Chin was not a decision maker or a top official, but he had access to information. And the access that he had to Nixon and Kissinger's plans for opening up China and establishing a kind of anti-Soviet 
alliance of sorts with China was a huge intelligence coup. Even if it didn't change either side's policies, uh, just giving Mao Zedong and Zhou Lai and others warning that or a tip that Nixon and Kissinger were going to reach out to them gave them a huge advantage. It's like knowing your opponent's chess moves in advance. Certainly was. And he continued to operate for over a decade after that. He retired in 1983. And he was only discovered by accident, not directly by a mole inside of the new Ministry of State Security at the time in 1985, who knew about an agent working for the Chinese side who had been on a particular flight that had been canceled. And so from there, the Bureau was able to um, do a lot of puzzle piecing together, puzzle assembly, and they figured out that the prime suspect was Larry Chin. Mm. So we have uh, we've had some successes or known successes against Chinese intelligence penetrating them. Just reminds me of the old man magazine, Spy versus Spy. And it goes around and around. It's hard to sell where the successes and the failures meet. We've seen reports that by other China experts that there may be hundreds, if not thousands, of agents of various degrees, assets of various degrees, reporting to China inside the federal government. What what do you think of that? I'd really like to see more evidence about that. I really wonder when that sort of claim is made. At the same time, of course, the Chinese side has an advantage when it comes to this sort of thing. And that is that once you become an American citizen, which is five years after you become a permanent resident, if you want to take that path, then after 10 more years, you can have a top secret clearance. And this is the sort of thing that was pursued by uh, Chi Mok, another famous agent at the time anyway. Probably he's been forgotten over time. But in the 1980s and into the 90s, he was uh, a very important private sector security cleared individual who had worked at places like Power Paragon, which was a, uh, a contractor with the U.S. Navy that helped him build submarines the uh, propulsion systems. So he gave the Chinese side secrets regarding silent submarines Mm. that uh, will probably be of great use if there's ever any trouble in the South China Sea. Certainly will. Um, I suppose the spy game is going to go on and on. Do you think as a result of this incident, I'm just asking for your opinion here, not you have particular inside knowledge, do you think as a, as a result of this incident with General Milley calling them up, uh, calling up his counterpart along? He didn't do this alone, by the way. General Milley uh, uh, had many other members of his group, including the Secretary of Defense, other members of uh, interagency task forces and so on. Very aware of that he was reaching out to China to warn them that things were kind of uh, roly poly in Washington and that. We were not planning to attack them. Do you think the Chinese gained more of an advantage from, from such a interchange? No, I don't. I, I think that what happened there sounds really familiar with the nuclear strategy course I took way back in graduate school. And that is that 
both sides of any potential nuclear exchange fear a number of things. They fear a surprise attack. They fear that the leader of the other side may have lost their minds and will do something suicidal or crazy with nuclear weapons. They fear misunderstandings and miscommunications that could lead to bad decision-making on one side or the other. And so I think that General Milley was not being a hawk or a dove. He was being an owl. He was probably checking with everybody he could before he made that call as to its appropriate uh, nature. And it was probably a pretty darn good thing he did because the last thing we'd need is for the Chinese side to think that in the next 20 minutes, the U.S. is going to strike their side. And now's their chance to use their nuclear arsenal before it becomes null and void. Much better to make a mistake in talking than shooting. We've seen uh, the history of the world is replete with instances of mistakes or accidents that led to war. A point I'd like to make is that you hardly hear anybody talking about going to war with Russia. Why on earth are so many people talking about going to war with China? They have enough nuclear weapons to destroy a lot of people. And so what we need to be doing is, I think what General Milley did, we need to be making sure we avoid misunderstanding and slipping into an accidental war. Well, that's for sure. Matthew Brazil, it's always great to take advantage of your expertise in Chinese, on China in general, and in particular Chinese intelligence, spy agencies, espionage operations. For those listening in and hearing of Matt for the first time, you can catch up on his work at the Spy Talk newsletter and website, spytalk.co. I hope you will. And we'll certainly be checking in with Matt on the podcast from time to time to talk about just this kind of thing. Thanks again, Matt. Well, the pleasure was all mine. That was Matthew Brazil, co-author of Chinese Communist Espionage. Interesting that Matt has a healthy skepticism about the number of Chinese spies that are actually in the U.S. In previous episodes, we've had guests on who have been ringing the bell on this. And I find it fascinating that he, as knowledgeable as he is, wants to know a little bit more. It does make you wonder if there's some hype about the Chinese threat in its dimensions. Yeah, I think Chinese information gathering is conflated with Chinese espionage. They're two very different things. China does mobilize its citizen scholars and so on who come to the United States to gather open source information, technical information, corporate information, military information, and send it back to China where it's poured over and analyzed by an army of analysts. But that's different than spying where you have an undercover agent inside the government. And like you say, Gene, we've we've reported in the past, we've had a guest on who's alleged that there's hundreds of spies uh, in the federal government, or at least contact agents for Chinese intelligence. And uh, I think it's, there's a lot yet to be sorted out. And we're trying to sort it out in, a, in the context of a, of a kind of a hysteria about Chinese espionage here, where maybe just prudent uh, watching and analysis is, is more warranted. So anyway, that's another week of Spy Talk. Thanks for joining us. And remember that you can find Spy Talk on Substack. Subscribe there for a lot of great content beyond the great content, of course, that you hear on this podcast every week. 
I'm Gene Mazur. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Jeff Stein. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.